You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Joy pervades the whole of our reading this morning. Joy as two relatives separated by some considerable distance meet. Joy at the sight of a previously childless Elizabeth, obviously six months pregnant, and joy at the fulfilment of God's promises. These memories that we've read today, probably recounted by Mary firsthand to Luke, aren't just recorded for human interest. It's not just about seeing two women meet, um, two family members meet. Luke's focus is designed to um, make a link with another joyful event in the history of Israel. And that event was the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Um, that was the time that David famously danced undignified before the Lord, before the Ark, half-dressed in front of this procession. And it's that same joy, that same joy of coming back, of salvation being uh, present, of God fulfilling his promises, that same sense of fulfillment and hope that Luke wants to provoke in us by recording the passage, recording the, the events in this scene in the way he has. And so he, he, Luke, in the way that he writes this account, he draws very specific parallels between what's happening here and a passage in the Old Testament, Second Samuel chapter 6. Feel free to turn to it if you want to, if you've got a Bible in front of you. There are all these different parallels. So it, uh, in this passage in Luke, Mary uh, arose and went to the Judean hill country. In 2 Samuel 6, David arose and went into the Judean hill country to retrieve the ark. Um, Elizabeth expresses uh, the same sense of awe and unworthiness before Mary as David uh, said before the ark. Elizabeth says, why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And David says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? There's a deliberate echo there in the words. And just like David danced before the ark as it went, as it came back to Jerusalem, the infant inside Elizabeth's womb, John, leaps with excitement before Mary, pregnant with the Messiah. And just as the ark of the covenant was stopped for three months in this household in the hill country of Judea, the household of Obed Edom, you'd have to remember that, but it's, you know, it's, it's there. Um, the ark stayed there for three months, so Mary stayed in the house of Zechariah for three months. And there's more as well. Uh, Luke uses a very unusual word to describe Elizabeth's cry of welcome. In fact, it's only used here in the New Testament and five times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And every time it's used to describe the joyful, almost ecstatic praise of God that occurs in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So there's these very deliberate parallels. Why is uh, Luke making that connection? He's showing that Mary is, as Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord. That she's carrying the presence of God like the ark did. The child that has been conceived in her is none other than God himself. The ark, I'm sure most of you know, but it's worth just reminding ourselves, was a wooden box designed by God, commissioned to Moses to build, inlaid with gold, But it was more than a box. It was designed to be emblematic of the identity of Israel. It was to be the place where God met with people. 
So in the Old Testament, we have the, the account of Moses going and speaking face to face with God day after day. Where he would go would be to the ark. And between the wings of the two uh, carved angels on the top, God's glory was said to appear. And Moses would speak face to face with God. It was a thing of power. They would, uh, the Israelites would carry it wherever they went ahead of, uh, uh, through the wilderness ahead of wherever they went. They carried it across the Jordan and it made the, the waters part as they entered the promised land. They carried it into battle and it brought them victory. It was a, it was a thing of assurance, of, of power, of God's glory, but a, a place where you could meet with God. But above all, it was, like the icon, the emblem of Israel itself, the place where God's glory would come and people could meet with God. That's what Israel, the nation, was all about. It wasn't just in this one place. It was like the whole country. So bound up in this box was all the identity of Israel, the hope of promises made to Abraham, the, the hope of of. Uh, God blessing them, the hope of the people of the world coming to to know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Luke is saying to us, Mary is the fulfillment of that because she's carrying not just the glory of God, but she's carrying in a womb this meeting place between God and man. She's carrying all those hopes, but in their fulfillment. And our joy at the incarnation should match the joy of Israel before the ark. In fact, our joy at the incarnation of Christ should exceed the joy of Israel when they were in the presence of the ark. It should exceed the joy of David as the ark comes back to Jerusalem out of captivity to the, to the Philistines. Yet there's a sense of increase. You know, uh, Mary says, God uh, has blesses from generation to generation. It's not, you know, it's a sense of going on and increasing and increasing. God's promises are not only repeated, his faithfulness is not only re-demonstrated, but it's fulfilled in Christ. So we're going to look at uh, joy specifically in a moment. But before we get that, there's just one thing that I think... um, (laughs) God would say just by a kind of specific and almost by the by application, but I think it's really, really good. Um, just to begin with this. Folks, we should, uh, love the Old Testament, shouldn't we? We should love it. We should love the Old Testament because it helps us to understand Jesus. It's just a really, really simple point, but there's, there's so much in this passage and I could probably go on for another half hour or so unpacking the connections between this passage and the Old Testament, but it's all there. To, to understand Jesus' life, to understand what he did, what he said, why he died, how it applies to us, not just in the abstract, but actually in our personal relationship with God day to day, we need to understand the, the God of the Old Testament, the things he said and the things he's done. The Old Testament, it's like a, a dictionary that helps us to understand the word of God. I was um, watching recently uh, the third series of a show on TV. I won't tell you which one because it'd be boring to you. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a long, long story over 30 or so episodes. And it's been four or five years in the making or something like that. And it finishes with these two characters. And uh, they have this meeting. And one of the characters reaches out his hand and 
uh, right at the end, and he just touches the other guy on, on the hand as they're talking across the table, kind of an act of reconciliation. And I started to get quite emotional at this point. <laughs> um, I don't watch a lot of television, but it kind of moved me. You know, it's this, these characters who've been kind of loggerheads, and there'd been a lot of misunderstanding between them, and through 30 episodes of this TV program, you know, you, you kind of see the tension build, and you're kind of hoping that maybe one day they could have some kind of reconciliation. And here it is, the story writers did their job really well. Here it is in the very last episode. Just this one act, uh, one person's hand touching another, creates this incredible emotion because there's this story behind it. Because you understand what that means. It's not just one guy saying, there, there, it's all right, or however else you might interpret that action. It, It carried the weight of this whole story behind it. Well, if that's true of a silly fictional TV program, that can move me. How much more, when we understand the whole of the story of God, does it give weight and meaning to, um, to the life of Christ? You know, so Jesus crosses the Jordan. We talked we talk about um, in his baptism, you know, the new Joshua. Uh, we've got, you know, Moses goes up on the mountain and comes back with the law. You've got Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount declaring the new law. All these connections are wonderful uh, um, if we understand the Old Testament. So just by the by, it's not the most emotionally impactful application that we're going to hear, but I just want to encourage you to immerse yourself in the Old Testament. Don't just read the New, which is in some ways a lot easier to read because it's more modern in its style. But read the Old Testament too and pray and ask God to make those connections for you. Ask him. The Holy Spirit will lead you and teach you. And there's a wonderful, wonderful joy that comes when you spot those things for yourself. And it's not just you come in on Sunday and the preacher makes those connections for you. But you can spot them for yourself. It's really wonderful, rich. And it's not just a mental exercise as well. It deepens your relationship with God. There's there's one beautiful connection in this passage. You know, just an example of what I'm talking about. Mary's obedience. You know, Mary's obedience undoes the disobedience of Eve. Isn't that a wonderful connection? You've got, uh, you know, Eve, right at the beginning of the Old Testament, disobeys God, and her disobedience leads to Adam's disobedience. And the fall is on Adam's shoulders, right? But Eve was kind of there just before. And, but just before the salvation of the world appears, you've got another woman obeying God and leading to grace flooding back in. That's just a wonderful little connection. And, you know, that's just something like that. It shows, you know, uh, we can apply that to our lives. That's not just some interesting literary fact. It shows that God's power to restore all things, restore all things. It's not just a, a power to destroy the works of the enemy, but to beautifully undo them. To take everything that was lost and restore it back. And there's a beautiful harmony and balance to how, how God does things. What he does in Eve and in Mary on this massive scale for the world, he can do in your life too. He takes everything that's broken and restores all things. Everything that's lost will be given back. I just think that's that's wonderful. So anyway, just a little illustration of what I'm saying. Okay, back to joy. I'm just going to grab a drink, excuse me. Okay, so here's our main point today. Our joy at the news of the incarnation should be like that of Israel in the presence of the ark. More so. So our joy at Christmas should be like uh, over, overwhelming. It should be more than like dancing, you know, with our, uh, you know, some of our clothes missing, like David was before the ark. 
<laughs> more than dancing in the aisles. Take that in context, obviously. Um, more than dancing in the aisles. There should be this incredible, incredible joy. Where does that come from? Well, firstly, first, there's only two points really today, aside from that, um, this thing about the Old Testament. Firstly, joy in the fullness of salvation. We should be filled with joy because the salvation Mary carries is more powerful than what came before. Now that is quite an astonishing thing when you begin to think about what the Ark of the Covenant represented and what it actually achieved in the life of Israel. Luke is focusing down again in his characteristic way of picking on how small things are incredibly significant in the, in the kingdom of God. He's focusing on this small uh, young woman from a small town in a, a backwater part of the world. And he's saying she is more important than the ark, the revered and ark, the ark of um, raiders of the lost ark or whatever it is. You know, the ark that's in our popular imagination, but even more so for the people of Israel. The power and the focus of the presence of God. She is... More important than that, because she carries a salvation that is greater. That's what he's saying. And as Christians, we should know in our heart of hearts, that our, our, our lived experience of our faith should be that the salvation we carry is wonderfully, joyfully great to change lives and to rescue people. To, to move people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There should be a real and a tangible understanding that what we have is not just a good religion, not just a, a, you know, a better version of what other people have, not just a more refined religious system, but an experience of knowing God that cannot be matched, that exceeds even the great historical events of the people of Israel. That is quite astonishing. I was watching an interview. Some of you may have seen this. Uh, if uh, you're a fan of a guy called Ben Shapiro, I know at least one person is. Uh, there's a guy, American kind of political commentator called Ben Shapiro. He's an Orthodox Jew. And he has a, a show where he invites guests and he does interviews with them. And he often invites people who, with whom he would disagree, but, you know, who he can have a good conversation with. And he invited onto a show a Catholic bishop called Robert Barron. It sounds a bit like Robert Barron, but that's what I think of when I, um, when I, <laughs> when I hear his name. But anyway, Bishop Robert Barron. Anyway, um, Bishop Robert Barron is a very eloquent uh, guy, and they had a wonderful kind of exchange. And I think, actually, this, this Catholic bishop did a, quite a good job of showing how uh, the Catholic faith, uh, the Christian faith, was a fulfillment of Judaism. And he quite, quite passionately, quite evangelistically, I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is a, you know, I'd be surprised if, if it wasn't having some effect on the, this guy, Ben Shapiro. And then... Um, and Ben Shapiro is this is a super clever guy. I mean, you, you know, may not like what he says or anything like that, but he's, he's super clever. He's very polite and, you know, um, quite eloquent in the things he believes and so on. And he's sitting there and, he's, and he, he comes back with this question. It's like an evangelist's dream. He just says to him, so I'm an Orthodox Jew. I pray three times a day. I, um, you know, I, I worship God. I, you know, I read the Torah. I, um, you know, I do atonement. I have like a whole day set aside for atonement once a year. You know, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, all those sorts of things. Can you tell me what really is the actual tangible difference between what I experience of God and what you experience of God? What's the difference? You know, it wasn't just like, am I going to heaven? He did ask that question as well. Do you think I'm going to heaven? But he asked this question, what's the difference? And I was just like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> what an amazing question. Can you feel the weight of that question? This question is so, so important for us. What is the actual difference? 
between what you believe as a Christian and the best, most devout, most sincere, orthodox Jewish person who does not believe in Jesus. What's the difference? Every Christian should know. Don't you think? And I'm not just talking about, you know, you think about where you go when you die. I'm not just talking about, like, that we have an assurance of salvation. That, that's, that's something, right? That's something. But that's not the question he was asking. He was, he was asking this question, what's the day-to-day difference? The Ark of the Covenant, the wooden box inlaid with gold, so precious, contained three uh, things. Well, at least three things, the writer of the Hebrew t- Hebrews tells us. It contained the staff of Aaron, by which, uh, which budded, by which God demonstrated to the people of Israel which tribe he would have as his priesthood among the people of Israel. And what a wonderful thing that God gave to the people of Israel. The priesthood and the temple and the sacrifice and the ability to come into his presence and have fellowship with him. The ability to be forgiven of sins, accidental and intentional. What a wonderful thing it was. And yet Jesus is the true staff of Aaron, the true high priest. The one who is not only able to forgive on the outside, but actually truly cleanse us of our sins. He's the one who's not just able to say, I forgive you. Not just able to declare us forgiven, but is actually able to, by his spirit, wash us clean of sin, set us free from the things that bind us, from, from habits and enslavements, from, from the depths of evil that are twisted up in our hearts. He can actually set us free from those things. That is, that's wonderful news, isn't it? The ark contains a pot of manna. This miraculous bread-like substance that came down and fed the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. And they kept a pot of it as a reminder of what God had done. He sustained them in this wilderness. And John tells us, Jesus tells us, Jesus is the true bread of heaven. The one who's able to feed us with the very life of God. The one who, by being united to him, actually makes us united with God, that God's life can come into us, give us joy and peace, the ability to love God. You know, I heard someone say uh, this week, you know, what Jesus gives us is the ability to love God with the love of God. I just think that's so wonderful. (laughs) You know, it's often, uh, I say from here that, you know, to be Christ-like is to, to know the Father's love to us and to be able to love the Father like the Son and to be able to overflow with love full of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's uh, kind of central, I think, to, uh, to what God wants to say to us at the moment. But I just think that's a lovely way of summing up my slightly wordier version. To be able to love God with the love of God. To be able to love people with the love of God. Isn't that wonderful? To know God's love like God knows it. That's what... Jesus is. He's the true bread of heaven. Um, the, the Ark of the Covenant contained the stone tablets on which was written the law of Moses, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is the one who writes the law in our hearts so that we can actually love the things God, God loves and we can hate the things 
God hates. And we can move freely and do what he wants from freedom. Not from because God tells us to from the outside. Not because there's some religious commandment in a book that says you must do this and you must do that. And we think, oh, I better do that because I'm so afraid that if I don't do that, I'm going to be punished. But because we're filled with the truth of God, we'd love to do the things that God loves. We love to run away from the things that God hates. We love to destroy the works of the enemy and build up the works of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one who writes the law on our hearts. So you know, just, we could go on and on, could we? Jesus, the salvation we have in Jesus is so wonderful. He is the, the true meeting place where not just one man, specially chosen, gets to see God face to face, but where all of us get to gaze upon God and not just glow for a day or so. Be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We get to be transformed to be like him. So there's this power that as we think about those things should fill us with a joy that makes us want to dance. As we think about this scene, there's a a woman here Carrying the Messiah, not just the Son of David, the Son of God, who's to bring us to God Himself. It's just, just so wonderful. But it's not just, it's not just the, 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 our destination in terms of salvation. It's who that salvation is available to. You know, there's this, there's this puzzle, there's this sense of unfulfillment up until this point in the story of Israel. God made this incredible promise to Abraham, not only that he would give him a son, not only that he would give him a nation or a place to live, but God, thousands of years before, promised the, uh, Abraham that he would make him a father of all nations. And so far, promise upon promise has been fulfilled. But this idea that the knowledge of the true God would somehow break out of the people of Israel and fill the world had not happened. It seemed like people weren't willing or able to come to know this God. Maybe the law was too burdensome. The requirements of being Jewish, uh, converting to Judaism were too burdensome. And every now and then you get someone who became a God-fearer who'd come close, that sort of thing. But nothing like, you know, your descendants will number like the stars. So there's a sense in which, for as good and as wonderful as, as all the gifts to, to Israel were, and they're re- represented by the ark, there's a sense in which that there was a puzzle too. I thought of this when I was thinking about this guy, Ben Shapiro, because he's, he's from a, from a wealthy family, he's from a privileged background, he's got like an IQ of 162 or something like that, he's gone to Harvard, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's probably wealthy himself, he's uh, a gifted guy. And it's all very well for him to sit opposite a Christian and say, you know, I pray three times a day and I read the Torah and I do all these religious things. I'm thinking, right, because it's probably not too hard for you with all the good things that you've got. Someone who's privileged. But what about somebody else? And there's this theme in Mary's song that emerges, this theme of fulfillment, that the salvation that has now come is not just better in terms of its end result, but it's capable of bursting those natural banks of limitation of who can enter into this salvation. Not just the privileged few, 
Not just those with natural virtue. Not just those who have a genetic gift or socially advantaged. Not just those people. And not just those who've benefited from all the gifts of God to Israel either. But the poor, the lowly, the lowly will be lifted up. The hungry will be filled. You know, there's this word Mary uses, this word blessed. It was actually the, the, the colloquial word to describe those who weren't poor. It has this sense of privilege, this sense of like we don't have to struggle and labor. When she says she's blessed, she's saying, I've, I, the unprivileged, the humble, the nobody, have been made, have been lifted up to have the true, have true riches. It's this sense in which this promise to Abraham is now being fulfilled. It's able to expand beyond the borders of Israel. That is good news. This salvation reaches all, lifts up the lowly, fills the hungry in a way that it could not before. It gives, it's able to give life to those who are dead. It's able to give virtue to those who are just rubbish. <laughs> it's able to give parents to those who have none to guide them. Fathers to the fatherless and mothers to the motherless. Siblings to those without a family. It lifts the filthy sinner from the mire. You know, and so there's this truth that comes through in what Mary's saying, you know, echoed in Jesus in Matthew 11, I think it is, when Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We have something that makes us more privileged than even the greatest, most devout, most chosen, most, you know, specially singled out person who does not have Jesus. Why? Because, if I don't know about you, but if I start life as me, no amount of hard work, no amount of devotion is going to make me someone as clever or as privileged as Ben Shapiro. <laughs> but because of the incarnation of the Son of God, something far more astonishing than everything else in Scripture, more astonishing than crossing of the Red Sea, more astonishing than the glory of God descending in the temple, more astonishing than all the victories in the battles of Israel, more astonishing than all the healings, more astonishing than the giving of the law. I can start life as me, Jeff Chapman, and become like Jesus Christ. And so can you. if anything is going to make me dance and I'm not sure it will but (laughs) if anything is it's that good news what faithful response can we have to that you know God just challenges us I think through this word not to replace it not to replace that astonishing height to which God has raised us with anything else you know, it's when we realize the magnitude of our salvation that we know the joy of our salvation. You know, if, if, if we minimize our salvation by, by filling ourselves with a false humility that says, I can't do it. A Christianity that is just repentance, just sorrow for sin, just an awareness of God's mercy to us in forgiveness. We will have some joy, but we will not have the joy of our salvation. 
Uh, if that's the extent of our understanding of salvation, that we are forgiven, that will move us to some degree, but it's not what David was dancing about. It's not what filled Mary with that sense of blessedness. It's not the whole story. You know, that's not going to move you to tell people about Jesus. Because you're going to feel like a hypocrite. If you're not hungry for this actual transformation, we're not going to be filled. If, on the other hand, we make out that being a Christian is just behaving well, like some kind of minor moral improvement where I'm able to do a little bit of good here and there, that I've got some, you know, super religion that's just better than other religious systems. Where I'm stumped for an answer when someone like Ben Shapiro says, well, I'm devout. I love God. What's the difference? We're going to miss out too. That's not going to drive us to that true repentance that says, God, this mess inside me, there's nothing I can do about it. Heal me, Lord. Lord, your promise that one day I can be like Christ is so reliable, Lord. Transform me into his image. That's what God wants in us, that that absolute dependence that comes from seeing the heights to which he calls us. That's what gives us that true humility. Without that, we're like the rich. He sends us empty away. But when we come to him, acknowledging the heights to which he wants to raise us, aware of that enormity of our blessing, we're blown away. We're like, how is it possible that such a salvation should come to me? The source of our joy. So that's our first point about joy this morning. And the uh, second point about joy just follows on from that, really. The magnitude of our salvation. But secondly, it's seeing that in one another is a source of our joy. You know, as we realize what God, not only how God has saved us, but how he has saved you and you and you as people who have accepted Christ, as we see that power at work in one another, that fills us with joy as well. You see in this passage a beautiful picture. I mean, I'm sure it's been painted a thousand times. You can probably go and see it in the National Gallery or something. Mary meeting Elizabeth in these two uh, cousins. Parted by age and distance. And both of them with these wonderful promises. These amazing things happen to them. And we see this joy. It's, it's just so much more than just two... Two relations meeting, isn't it? It's it's this wonderful thing. But Elizabeth's delight as she sees Mary. I just think it's wonderful. The the baby leaps in her womb. She's overwhelmed. How is it possible that you would come to me? That same delight that Elizabeth is filled with as she sees Mary is the delight we should be filled with as we see one another. C.S. Lewis uh, gives a description of uh, the kind of love that we have in friendship and the way that friendship works. And as always, he's very, very insightful in his his description. He talks about, imagine a group of three friends, fast friends, you know, best friends, and uh, spend a long, long time together. They meet together, you know, all the time. But then for some reason, one of those friends goes away. They move away because of a job or, you know, something happens, maybe they die, you know, and... So that group of three friends becomes two. And he says this um, he says this really insightful thing. He says, when that third friend goes, you haven't just lost one person, but actually you've lost more than that. 
is that third friend and they bring something out in your second friend. Bring something out in them that you appreciate in a new way. And when he goes, it's gone. And he brings something out in you that your friend loves. So when they go away, you know, that's gone. So, you know, three minus one isn't, isn't two, it's less than that somehow. And I just think that's a wonderful picture of the way heaven works. The way the church is supposed to work. In reverse. Our friendship with one another and with God enables us to know God more. Because you are a Christian, because you love Jesus, when I look at you, I know God more than I can on my own. You, you enable me to know, I don't just get to know you, I get to know him more. I just, I just think that's a, a wonderful picture of the way heaven works, of God's glory. It's not just that we're going to behold his glory perfectly. We're going to behold his glory magnified a billion times over in one another as well. There's light shining upon us from his face, but also refracted again and again and again through the lives of Christians. The uh, um, Italian poet Dante writes about this. Um, okay, he's, he's a Catholic and he's writing from the Middle Ages, so he's got some kind of imagery that's not, <laughs> that's not familiar to us. But he has this picture of um, a soul ascending from purgatory into heaven. And so it gets released from purgatory. This is kind of like, you're not in heaven yet. And it goes into heaven. And he, he imagines that in heaven at the time, there's like an earthquake that happens. And everything is shaken. And the soul ascends into heaven. And at that moment, the people in heaven rejoice because they see God's glory more as that person comes into heaven. I just think that's wonderful. That, that's a picture of church. That's why the church is, is so important. That's why fellowship, we welcome members in today. That's, you know, that's is it filling my prayers today is the thought of preaching to you about this because we enable one another to see and to know God more. You know, it's not just in fellowship, of course, the church in history too. We should, we should love the church throughout time and space. We should recognize God's glory in those who've gone before us, their faithfulness. But just as important is our love for one another. Every Christian comes to us like Mary to Elizabeth, a temple of the Holy Spirit. If what I've said before is true, a bearer of unimaginable glory. You know, that, that glory may be just conceived. It may be hardly grown. But by God's grace... Christ will be born in them. One day, we'll, one day, when we see them in the light of heaven, when we see one another in the light of heaven, we will be so filled with joy that we will want to dance before each other. Then you'll get to see me dance. Not in this life. <laughs> but when I see you in heaven. <laughs> Maybe. You know, that's why the unity and the peace of the church is so important. That's why they're so associated with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's why the Psalms speak prophetically. The New Jerusalem, the church, is the joy of the whole earth. You know, why we should walk around its ramparts, count its towers. Because God has deemed it appropriate to display his glory through you. That's why division and envy, gossip, and all those things are so destructive. As we tear down one another, we're tearing down temples of the Holy Spirit. 
And we're diminishing not only them, but our ability to know and to worship God. I am so aware as I bring this message to you how idealistic it sounds. <laughs> how far away from any experience of church <laughs> we've, we've had, really, can be. But in the light of my previous point, I just think it's a place where we can joyfully practice that. I cannot believe this is what God has called us to. Lord, this is so far beyond my reach. I'm so messed up by sin. So weighed down by my inability to see other Christians in that way. Lord, help me. Open my eyes. Heal my blindness. But even with, even if I were healed, able to do it, to love like that is so beyond me, Lord. I need your grace and your power at work in me. You know, we so easily excuse our sin in this regard in terms of tearing down one another, judging one another, not delighting in one another. Because we fail to realize how central it is to God's plans. We so easily downgrade and misjudge people. It's so easy to do, isn't it? From even the most everyday situations. You're at a coffee shop and you're there, you want to grab a quick coffee, you've got 15 minutes, and the person in front of you like puts in an order for the whole office. <laughs> and you're there, all holy, you've had a great quiet time that morning, you're in the presence of God, you're like, I'm so looking forward to this coffee, Lord, I'm going to have a great prayer time in the coffee shop, whatever it is, something holy. And this person made in the image of God, full of his glory and potential, suddenly becomes like, what the devil? <laughs> How could you hold me up for an extra three months? You know, I'm just, it's, I'm, you know, it's funny, but it's true, isn't it? Isn't that a work in us? It was so quick. So easily we, we, we turn on other people. We so easily lose sight of the image of God in the world and even in church. I just, I almost think it's the, it's the most solid evidence we have of how fallen we are. Just how badly we treat one another. And we don't hunger for it. Because we don't believe that God can do it. But he can. The impossibility of that love for one another is not a cause for despair. It's not a cause for us to lack faith. It should move us to cry out to God. You know, the thing that you don't like in that other person, <laughs> this is the thing that got me. As I've prepared this sermon, it's, you know, the thing that you don't like in that other person, the thing that makes it hard to get on with them or to love them, you know, that may be a result of their sin or a weakness in their life or an immaturity in Christ. But you know what's far more likely? It's just, it's probably an aspect of God's glory that you don't like, an aspect of his love that you don't know about yet, something you haven't learned about God yet, something you haven't reconciled with. And in rejecting that person, you could well be rejecting Christ himself. His beauty is so manifold, so magnificent, so varied, so full. It's displayed in so many different ways. We have to be open to seeing that in one another. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to hear, to think that the thing I'm offended by in one of you, say, not that would ever happen. The thing I'm offended in uh, by in you might offend me if it was in Christ himself. 
So I want to invite you this morning just to come to God with that simple, heartfelt repentance to acknowledge that ark-like glory (laughs) that is present in your brothers and sisters in Christ. To acknowledge that great knot of sin that you cannot untie. That distorts the way you see each other and the way you see the world. And to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Heal me. Help me to see. Take away this blindness. And this isn't just for you either. The world is dying almost literally, to see us love one another like this. We're in a world where again and again and again we hear in politics and in culture the value of the person. That's what's being said all around us. That's what's behind all the things, identity politics and the way our culture is going and it's affirming, 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 tolerance, tolerance. tolerance. What What it's trying to say is people are valuable. We should be saying amen to that. But we should also be able to turn around to the world around us and say, but you have no idea how valuable. It's not just that you're valuable because, you know, because of who you say you are, because you believe in yourself. No, you're valuable because you are potentially a temple of the Holy Spirit, because one day you could be like Christ, because one day you can display the glory of God and his love to the world like nobody else. You know, that's what the world is hungry for in all its messed up sin. That's what, you know, that's what's behind the, the lust that's enveloping our our world. That's what's behind the politics that's enveloping our world. That's what's behind, you know, snowflake millennials, or whatever you want to call them. It's this value. But we can point them to the real thing. We have the real thing. If the church is a place where we tolerate one another, our toleration won't even match that of the people around us. We have nothing to offer. But if we truly accept one another, if we truly delight and rejoice in God's glory in each other, the world will see that we have what they are hungry for. The love of God. This is our destiny, isn't it? To see one another like this. That's the heaven to which we're called. Church is the forecourt. <laughs> we want to live in his courts forever. We want to see his glory. God has given us the chance that we can begin to experience that even now. Let's pray and ask him for that, shall we?